If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I was gone last week. I can tell we played with the microphone and got it back in check now, so thank you for that. I missed you guys last week. As you turn to the beginning of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1, let me bring a good report from Pace Holbrooks. Last week I was preaching at Trinity PCA and had the opportunity to preach there and then to be involved in the ordination and installation of Pace Holbrooks, who many of you know was a student here at UNA, came through our church, was a pastoral intern here for a couple of years, married Laura McRae uh, here. We sent them off to Covenant Seminary and he's now the director of student ministries at Trinity uh, PCA in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And so I was so glad to be able to participate and honored that he would ask me to preach his ordination service. Uh, But I'm glad to be back here with all of you. My girls were out of school on Monday for Veterans Day, and so we got a cabin out in the middle of nowhere. There's not much between here in Tuscaloosa, and so uh, we just kind of stayed out in the middle of nowhere. And sometimes when I have a chance to be away like that and to get out of the day-to-day details of what I do here at Redeemer, I have more of an opportunity to see the big picture. And this is really a big picture sermon as we review what we've looked at in the book of Acts. And sometimes when I get away like that, I just begin to ask the question, what are we doing here at Redeemer? What are we doing? What are we supposed to be doing And if you're a guest here this morning, you may say, hey, this sounds like a family discussion, and to some extent, I suppose it is, but I'm glad that you're here, because I think in the sermon, you'll hear our heart as a leadership for what we want to be and to do as a church. I hope also in your search for a church home, you will at least hear from the sermon this morning what the Bible says a church is supposed to be and to do. And for those of you who are regulars who are here all the time, I will tell you one of the reasons that we're preaching through the book of Acts is because we get a really good picture of what the church is supposed to be and to do. We see the church in its earliest form, what it looked like right after Jesus ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit for his people, which is very similar to the situation we live in today, that we Jesus has ascended into heaven, we have the Holy Spirit, what are we supposed to do as a church? And if you've turned to Acts chapter 1, uh, you don't have to go very far until you get to about verse 3 right there, where we're told that the resurrected Christ spent 40 days with his disciples, and the whole time he spoke to them about one thing, He spoke about the kingdom of God. So evidently, whatever we're supposed to be and to do as a church, it has something to do with the kingdom of God. You see, the church is not the kingdom of God, but we are to be a picture of the kingdom of God as the rule and reign of Christ is more and more manifested in our own lives and as we bring whatever area is under our control under the rule and reign of Christ. So if we want to see what the kingdom of God looks like breaking into a man's life, you should be able to look at me, at my marriage, at my parenting, at how I do my job and see how The kingdom of God is manifested in those areas where I live my life. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be be doing something with the kingdom of God and manifesting that, picturing that for a watching world. It's so interesting to me, after Jesus spends 40 days talking about the kingdom of God, verse 6 says that his disciples asked an interesting question. 
So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Fascinating question, right? He's talking about the kingdom of God. They're talking about restoring the kingdom to Israel. Their thinking is still steeped in nationalism, the nation of Israel. It's still steeped in racism, their chosen race, Israelites, Jewish people, their ethnicity. Their thinking is still steeped in their religion that they are familiar with and that they grew up with and that they're used to. It's still driving their thinking. I wonder... Do those things still affect us? I believe that they do, and that's where we're going in the sermon today. I'm going to get to Acts 10, but we're putting it in a context and kind of reviewing where we've been in the book. And I think the story of Cornelius will show us that this is something we continue to struggle with as well. Here in Acts 1, Jesus gives one command to his disciples. Do you know what it is? Most folks are familiar with that verse 8 that says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses. And people think that's the command. We're to be witnesses. That's not a command. Jesus is just telling them when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses. It's a future indicative if you want to look at the grammar. Okay? So there's just one command. It's in verse 4. Do you see what he says there? Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised when you have heard me speak, uh, that you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in the next few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The command that Jesus gives is to wait on the Spirit to come and baptize, for them to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. When we talk about being witnesses, when we talk about evangelism, some of us are so afraid of that. We dread that so much. He's going to tell me to go out and share my faith. And eight weeks before this, Peter is asked if he's a follower of Jesus by a servant girl, and he denies knowing Christ. Not once, not twice, but three times. Peter denies knowing Jesus. We're here about eight weeks later now. And we see in Acts 2 where Peter's going to preach Jesus to 3,000 people. He'll get arrested in Acts chapter 3. He'll go before the Sanhedrin, the very people who put Jesus to death, and tell them that salvation's found in no other name, that they put to death the Messiah. And when they ask him to stop preaching in Jesus' name, in chapter 4 and verse 20, he's going to tell them, look, we can't help telling about the things that we've seen and heard. <laughs> what happened to that guy? Right? I mean, what difference has happened in eight weeks when he would deny knowing Jesus to a servant girl, and now he's standing before the people who killed Jesus and saying, I can't help but tell about it. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes at Pentecost, and we'll see that as we move forward. It's so important that if we're hesitant to see the kingdom grow, if we're hesitant to share faith, that we wait on the Spirit. I saw a great illustration of that this week. Um, My daughter, Caroline, her fifth and sixth grade class has gone through some difficult things this year. They had a kid move to town. I don't know the circumstances. He's very angry. He's sullen, kind of withdrawn from the class. Another boy in the class, his father died this semester just a a couple of weeks ago. There's a, a girl in the class who, who is in the midst of a custody dispute and may have to move away out of state. And then on top of all that, the class guinea pig, Pop-Tart, died this week. I mean, I'm like, Lord, have mercy. 
But I want you to hear the letter that I got from her teacher this week. She writes on Friday, I'm so excited about all the evidence of God's work in our children this week. The Holy Spirit is working in your children every day, and I'm so thankful to be a part of it. I had one student ask me earlier this week how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, how he lives in us, that that kid that moved to town who's been angry, who's been sullen, right? And then as this child who's in the midst of a custody dispute is worried about having to move away, she writes this. She said, we had an urgent prayer request yesterday where we just stopped everything we were doing and went to the Lord in prayer. There was not a dry eye in the room. Most students prayed out loud for this student. After we prayed, we received an email that the prayer had indeed been answered. All the children were clapping and praising God. The same student, the one that was angry and sullen, right, that had been withdrawn on the outside, asked the question, again, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? Do you, do you see that? Do you see what's going on? The church doesn't mean that we don't face difficult things because we follow Jesus. What it means is that we draw close to each other and close to him during that time, and we cry out in prayer, and those who are on the periphery watching see this taking place, And there is a faith, there is a grace, there is a difference in the way that we go through these things that people on the outside say, what is it that they have? That a fifth or a sixth grade student can say, how do you get that Holy Spirit? This thing that y'all are, you know, have to help you through these difficult things. How do you get that? That's what the church is. That people should see us filled with the Spirit, having the rule and reign of Christ in our lives, and say, I want that. I thirst for that. That's why people ask, Peter will say later, about the hope that we have in us, because they see a hope in us. Now, let me just stop time out in the sermon for a second. Let me ask this question. I'm coming out here with you, okay? Coming out here with you. He's supposed to stay up there. He's coming down here. I know. It's crazy, right? Might not be on the camera out there. If the student asked the question, um, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? Somebody please answer that question for me. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? How does that happen? If I'm here and I'm hearing you say I don't have to share my faith until I get the Holy Spirit and then it transforms the way I do life, how do you get the Spirit? He shows up. Absolutely, he does. How else? You open up. Good. Repentance and faith. Yeah, Peter's going to say that in Acts 2, right? That if you'll repent and be baptized, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Somebody said something back here. You ask. I knew you'd be there. (laughs) Guys, we talk about this sometimes. Here's a good place for you to go to remember, okay? Luke 11, 11. You can remember that, right? Luke chapter 11, verse 11. We celebrated Veterans Day this past week, right? The 11th month, the 11th day, the 11th hour, right? Luke 11, 11. Christopher Thickpin, is he here today? That's his birthday, November the 11th, right? Luke 11, 11. If you turn there and look, Jesus says that very thing. What does he say? He's in the context of his teaching on prayer. He gives the Lord's Prayer. He gives the example of a friend who's in need who keeps going and knocking on the door and asking his friend to do something, and his friend begrudgingly finally grants his request. And then he asks this, Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? 
Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You ask. You make a hundred. Very good. Excellent. Does my heart good to hear us say that, to know that, right? And I hope Luke eleven eleven is a place you can go for your own heart and for others. Because, you see, our, our hope wanes. We sang about it this morning, right? That, that, that difficult things happen. And we again, we go and ask. We again, we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need your spirit. I need your help. You've heard us talk in the, in the songs and in, and in Will's prayer about our dependence on God. And we have to continually go to him. So what are we doing here? What are we supposed to be doing? Something about the kingdom, We're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit and continually being filled. And then we're witnesses of what we've seen and heard in a way that advances the kingdom of God. Acts 2. Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. 3,000 people get saved. In verse 42, Acts 2, 42, we looked at this one week. And after Jesus ascends, after the Holy Spirit comes down, what do they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then they begin to share what they have. There's this fellowship, this koinonia that goes on. And and so we get a picture of what we're supposed to be doing here, right? We're supposed to be coming together, and there's this gathering that takes place around the word and prayer and fellowship and sharing our things with one another, This, this deep fellowship, this koinonia, the scripture says. And go back and listen to that sermon for the explanation about that. But at this point in Acts, we see a pattern that takes place. There's a gathering of God's people around the word and around prayer. And there's this community that takes place. But then they scatter and they go out and God uses them to advance the kingdom. Then they come back together and they gather around the word and around prayer. They remind each other of what God is doing. They hear testimony of what God is doing. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They go back out. They're scattered again. And they advance the kingdom. And then they come back together and they gather. And it's that pattern that we see over and over again. Let me show you. Acts chapter 3. Peter and John are going out. They heal a guy. They're sharing the gospel. They get arrested. They're before the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 4. Peter's standing up to, in front of them. And in chapter 8, we're told he's filled with the Holy Spirit. I thought he was already filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But he's filled with the Holy Spirit again. He preaches to the Sanhedrin. He says things like chapter 4 and verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no one, there's no other name in heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Speaking of Jesus, the one that they had put to death eight weeks earlier, it's here in chapter 4 and verse 20 when they tell him, don't preach in this name anymore, don't heal in this name anymore. In chapter 4 and verse 20, he says, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. They can't help it. They're so full of the Spirit. Totally different man than eight weeks ago. Right, And watch what happens when they let him go. They let him go. They say, don't preach in this name anymore. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. Gather again. Right? And what they do? Reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Gather prayer. Testimony about what God had done. They pray to God, Sovereign Lord, they said, You have made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot invade? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. Psalm 2. (laughs) They gather, 
testimony about God, pray the word, right? Look what happens, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. (laughs) They gathered around prayer and the word, testimony of what God is doing, community, fellowship with one another. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They go back out. That's the pattern. I thought they were already filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Well, they're filled with him again, right? So this is what life in the church looks like. This is what we are supposed to do. We gather around the word and around prayer. We have this community with one another, and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and then we go back out. <laughs> and, 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 and then we see the kingdom advance as we live as becomes followers of Christ. And we're used of God to uh, advance his kingdom. But here's what we do as Christians. We get into a debate on just how many times we're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. And we have this debate, well, is it just one time? I got the Holy Spirit when I was saved. I don't need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I got the Holy Spirit already. And then some folks say, well, no, you, there needs to be this second filling that you get. And we have this debate about whether we're supposed to be filled one time or two times. And of course, when we looked at these passages before, we said, no, that's not the wrong way to look at this. There's this continual filling. And then I don't know if we have a leak or something because we're broken because we leak out the Spirit and then we have to be filled again. And these folks are constantly going through that cycle. And so it's not one time, it's not two times. We said it's more like a car with gas in it, right? How many times do you fill up the new car with gas? Well, I filled it up one time. Well, no, you really need to fill it twice. And if you get the second filling, then you'll be all right. No, you fill up the car with gas as many times as you want the car to go do something, right? That's how many times you fill it up. If we heard people debate whether to fill a car with gas one or two times, we would think they were crazy. And that's the way we should sound to one another as we look at this idea of the Spirit. So what are we doing here? We're gathering together around the word and prayer, and we have community with one another in a way that the Spirit comes in and fills us, and then we are scattered out to be witnesses and live lives as becomes a follower of Jesus with the hope that we have so that people ask, and we keep doing that cycle. Now in Acts, through that point, all the danger had been outside the church, and then God begins to have them deal with some stuff in-house. You remember Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira? They gave the appearance of one thing, but the reality was something different. If you were here that week, you'll remember this, that their public face was not the same as their private face. If you're listening online, I'm holding up a smiley face on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper in front of my face. Because we said that there was a disconnect between what Ananias and Sapphira showed everyone and what was actually true. And we talked about hypocrisy, this giving a false appearance of goodness while hiding our real character, while having this pretense of faking it and deception. And we saw in Acts 5 that God hates hypocrisy. And when Ananias and Sapphira are hypocritical, they fall down dead. And that in this story, we see that God is protecting his church because it's a young church that could be destroyed by hypocrisy. And here's why. Listen, big picture, right? Because when they come together to gather, when they're with each other, if there's no real honesty, then there can be no real community. And if they're not honest with one another, then the, then the Spirit is grieved, right? We can grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4. The Holy Spirit is quenched, First Thessalonians says, right? 
And so the Spirit doesn't fill them, and so we can't be effective in ministry. So if there's not real honesty, there's not real community. So the Lord deals with that lack of honesty. He deals with that hypocrisy, and so we must too, right? To be used of God, we have to seek real community with real honesty, and we have to not isolate ourselves. We've got to move toward one another and be honest with one another and be open and have a humility that I'm a sinner in need of the grace of God and you're a sinner in need of the grace of God. And so let's move toward one another. Let's help each other and encourage one another. This is fascinating. Acts 6. They say, okay, we're going to be honest with each other. Well, the Grecian Jews start being honest that their widows aren't being fed in the daily distribution of food like the Jewish widows are. We'll be honest. Here's what's going on. And remember, we saw there that as the number of disciples increased, the number of complaints increased. And oh, that has helped my heart so much. Because I see the complaints. Come look at my email inbox. But it's because the number of disciples are increasing. Those number of complaints are going because God is moving and changing people's lives. Thank you, Lord, for the complaints in the email inbox. Because it means that you're moving and you're doing something in this place. But the question for us is, how did they handle that? Because if the number of disciples increases and so the number of complaints increased, what did they do biblically? That's what we're supposed to do as a church. What did they do? They didn't look for who to blame. They didn't throw the complainers out. They did not ignore the complaints. They didn't say that physical needs are not as important as spiritual things, that logistical stuff's not important. They chose additional leaders to be in charge of the distribution of food, and the disciples refused to be distracted from their primary focus, which was gathering people together for the ministry of the word and for prayer because that's what fuels the mission, right? And we get this beautiful picture of both and, and that's so important for us as a church because that's how the kingdom advances, Having a group of leaders that are focused on the spiritual, but also a group of people who are focused on the physical, so that this division of labor takes place, so that the kingdom grows as we push back physical brokenness and spiritual brokenness. Oh, what if we could be a church that, that, that could do both things? You've seen it before, right? Churches that are really good at a spiritual emphasis and they ignore these practical things. And the place is falling apart and the building's falling apart and nothing's organized. But man, they are spiritual. They've got the right interpretation of things. And they ignore something that's really important for the kingdom. They don't care that people are starving. They don't do anything about people outside the walls. They just make sure that their doctrine is pure and good and true and that they are delivering it to all six of the people that are there on Sunday morning. All right? Then you've seen the other extreme, right? Of course, these are characterizations. These are, you know, what am I saying? Caricatures. Thank you. The other group would be, hey, our programs are slick. Our stuff is great. I mean, come here. We run on time. We're efficient. We look good. We sound good. But I've lost my grip on my devotion to the word and to prayer. Well, you know, we found that the word and prayer doesn't really draw that well. And it doesn't for people who are not filled by the Spirit. And so we focus on having a slick machine, and we've lost our focus on the word and prayer, which is what fuels the mission. What if we could be a church that held on to both of those things? 
a group of people dedicated, focused on the spiritual aspects, but also caring about the physical nature of things that go on inside and outside the walls of the church. What if we could do both? That's what we're called to do as the church. And I've got to tell you, oh my, I've got to tell you, we are so close. We're so close. And you have been a part of that. Back in the fall when I preached on Acts chapter 6, you nominated men for the office of elder and deacon. One dedicated to the spiritual interest of the church. The other group dedicated to the physical and logistical things. And you have nominated men for Now I want you to know that we've been going through officer training and we've been studying the word and we've been studying uh, our book of church order and we've been looking at the qualifications for these men and we're in that process now. Those men will meet with the session on November 23rd and on December 7th and will be examined by them. And on or about December 9th, the session will announce a slate of candidates to serve as elders and deacons to have both of those groups. And then on or about January the 12th, we'll have an election that you will get to elect people who will serve as leaders in those two division of labor offices. Pray for that process. When the announcement comes out, get to know those men. Read 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 where we see the qualifications for those offices and vote for the people who will lead us in being that kind of church. Ooh, I'm excited. We're almost, I mean, January is not that far away. And we're so close to having that kind of division, that kind of attention, that kind of devotion in this place. It thrills me and excites me. What could February look like? If we, you, if we do that in January, what could February look like? I'm going to keep reading this book of Acts, right? What happens next? I can tell you what happens next. God sends you out. When we get things, our, our in-house things straightened out and we have real community with each other, we're, we're focused on the kingdom both physically and spiritually, God sends you out. And he uses you to change people. Lives are transformed, right? We saw that. They go to Samaria and the Samaritans are transformed. Even the awful Samaritans they felt would never change. Saul, who was like killing people, The biggest murderer of people in the church becomes the biggest missionary for the church. God just starts doing crazy stuff as he sends his people out. But i got to tell you, we've got to be ready to go. Because at first, the church does not scatter. They don't go out. They stay in Jerusalem. And God uses persecution in Acts 7. Remember, Stephen gives this speech and is killed in Acts 8 and verse 2. We're told on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Remember? It took persecution to get them to go out. Because see, that fellowship, that community, that time of prayer and that time in the word was so good. They didn't want to go out someplace else. They wanted to stay there. And that can be a temptation for us to get ingrown. And they stay there so much. That God has to send persecution to send them. We've got to be ready to go out with an expectation that people's lives are going to be changed and that God's going to do some amazing things in and through us. Notice also, we said there that when this transition takes place, the apostles stay in Jerusalem, but it's lay people who now take up the spread of the kingdom as as God starts breaking down these barriers. Leads us up to Cornelius. He's just now starting the sermon. Okay, look, there's only one point, okay? So stick with me. All right, one more point with Cornelius. 
Acts chapter 10, Cornelius has a vision. Cornelius, you need to know, is a Roman centurion. He's in charge of the Italian regiment. He's in Caesarea, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean. He fears God. He prays to God. He gives to the poor. He's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. He's not a Christian. He has a vision one day, and an angel tells him to send for Peter, who's in Joppa. He sends people to get Peter. It takes about three days to get there. Peter has a vision right before they show up of this sheet of clean and unclean animals. And a voice tells him to eat of the unclean animals. And you see there in, in, in chapter 10 and verse 15, Peter sa- the voice says to him, Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to eat the animals. A voice from heaven says to him, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happens three times. Peter's confused by it. It's confusing. Jesus has already declared all food clean in Mark 6, if you want to go back and look there. And Peter's like, I don't understand this thing about the food. Later he'll say, I saw God was talking about people. All right? The guys show up. They knock at the door. The Holy Spirit says to Peter, don't be afraid to go with them. So he goes to Cornelius' house. He gets there to Cornelius' house and says, hey, why did you send for me? And so then, in, um, down in verse 32 and 33, uh, Cornelius tells about the vision that he had. And then in verse 33, he says, So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Cornelius has gathered all his family and friends. They're all there to hear what this man that God said to bring into them. They all want to hear what God is going to say through him. Verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation, every ethnic group. Ethne is the word there. And so then Peter presents the gospel. He tells about the perfect life of Jesus. He talks about the death of Jesus taking the curse for us that we sang about this morning. He tells about the resurrection of Jesus that they actually ate and drank with him because it was a physical resurrection. All the way down in verse 43, he says, All the prophets testify about him, Jesus, that everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's our message that we go with the mission, right? That in Christ alone there is salvation. Look what happens. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised, and it's going to be important in a minute, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Peter stays there with them, teaches them. He goes back to Jerusalem. Word's already gotten back to Jerusalem that Peter has been baptizing because they baptize these people after they get the Holy Spirit. They baptize these people. Peter's been in the home with them. He's been interacting with these Gentiles, and the Jerusalem church is angry. Look at chapter 11, verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. Again, it's the circumcised again. That's important, right? So Peter tells him the story, his vision, Cornelius' vision, the Holy Spirit following him. And so, and then he says in verse 15, as I begin to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning at Pentecost. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus? Who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now, what's going on here? Follow me. If I lost you, come back. Okay, you got to kind of focus. This is kind of a difficult point to get because we don't know this culture and the custom, okay? 
But follow me here. I'm about to make a point, and if you don't hear how I got there, you're going to be like, how did he get that? Thanks, right? So what's going on here? Don't think like I did. See, I thought that the Jewish people believed that Gentiles just couldn't be saved. Like, like Saul will never get saved because he hates the church, and then he does. It's like amazing. Wow, I thought Gentiles were so bad they could never be saved, but uh, now they obviously can be. That's not what's going on, okay? Here's what's going on. Gentiles could be saved. In the history of the church, it's happened, right? Think about um, if you go back in the history of the people of God, there are people who have been saved. Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, believes that God will provide for her, and she becomes part of the people of God. Ruth is a Moabite woman, right? And is enfolded to the people of God. Gentiles could become believers. That happened. What their expectation was, who was it that was angry? The circumcised believers. Their expectation was, see, there's, there was no Christianity, right? They're not going to be called Christians until Antioch later. <clears throat> so their belief is that you become Jewish and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's how you get saved. And so their expectation is that Cornelius is going to become Jewish. He's going to be circumcised and not be an unclean Gentile, but be a clean Jewish person, then embrace Jesus as the Messiah, and then he could be saved. But Cornelius just heard the gospel, believed, and the Holy Spirit fell on him. <laughs> he didn't have to be circumcised. And they were shocked by this. I didn't know that you could be Jewish without being Jewish, right? Paul writes like that in if you read it, it doesn't make sense to us, but that's why, right? Some of us are Jew inwardly, even though we're not a Jew outwardly, Romans 2 talks about. So their expectation was is that Cornelius would become Jewish, and then he could be saved. And he didn't become Jewish, he just got saved. And so they're confused by that. So the lesson for us is this. Are you ready? Here's the lesson. As we go on a mission to make disciples... Our job is not to make people who look just like us, who match us culturally, racially, ethnically, but our job is to make disciples who biblically follow Jesus in whatever cultural expression they find themselves. That's a difficult concept. Let me illustrate it. The easiest one is remember the early missionaries. The first missionaries who went out, the critique is, oh, they're imperialistic. Most of them were from Great Britain, and they go out, and they're proselytizing people. They want to make Christians, and they make all these people in Africa or in, the, in Asia dress like Europeans, speak like Europeans. In fact, they, they had the influence of so many areas of society, they introduced the missionary position, right? That's how, in the details of their life, they got into, Right? They made them European in order to make them Christian. And folks said, that's not the way that it should be. Uh, it was Hudson Taylor that I have such a great respect for that people freaked out. It's like he's dressing like a Chinese person in order to reach the Chinese. And Hudson Taylor, I love the quote from him. What does it say? That he was convinced that the gospel would only take root on Chinese soil if missionaries were willing to affirm the culture of the people they were seeking to reach. Taylor argued this from the example of the Apostle Paul. Let us in everything not sinful become like the Chinese. If it's not prohibited in the Scripture, we're going to become like the Chinese, that by all means we may save some. That's the issue. Now, you might be sitting there saying, okay, well, that's fine. I don't believe people have to be Jewish to become Christian. I don't believe they have to be European or Western in order to become a Christian. 
But I think as we go, we struggle with this. Because for us, the challenge is we, what we're, our expectation is if somebody is saved, they're going to look, and let's just feel, for most of us, what, what would it be? They would look like a white Southern Presbyterian. That's kind of our expectation, right? That that's what the, they would look like. That they would be proud to be an American, right? Listen, our goal is not to make people bend the knee at our national anthem or at our flag. Our goal is to make people bow the knee to King Jesus. We do this with our political party, don't we? Ooh, oh no, don't go there. One of our elders tells the story, and you'll have to talk to him to get it exactly right. But I love to hear him tell the story of, of being around in-laws at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, at different times, that at different points in history he may advocate for his political party, but he would also advocate for the kingdom of God, for Christianity. And it finally got back to him that one of his in-laws said, I don't want to be a Christian because I don't want to, jo- I don't have to change political parties. And he said, oh, my goodness. In my zeal for these things that I love, I've sent the wrong message. And we can do that. If you argue just as strongly for your political party online, or more strongly, I would say, for most of us, than what we argue for the kingdom of God, we send that message. Or we think, okay, you can be a Christian. I've had people say this. You can be a Christian being part of the other political party, but if you're really sanctified and mature, you'll be a part of mine. Growth in the Christian life looks like becoming a part of my political party. I think Cornelius would say differently. I think God's saying differently here. Culturally, we want people to be a Christian sometimes. We want them to talk like us. We want them to worship like us. We want them to sing songs like us. We want them to use the same genre of music as us. Sometimes we think sanctification in the faith looks like being a good southern person. Right? That, that sanctification looks like getting a haircut with your shirt tucked in with a belt on saying yes ma'am and no ma'am and, and drinking sweet tea, I guess. Right? We want that for our kids. Listings. And that we really work hard to do both well. And as we go, and as we beg God to use us to make disciples... We don't expect people to look exactly like us. We go Bible in hand. And if it's a violation of this, then we're going to talk about that. And if it's not a violation of this, we're going to let it go. And ask God to come and to use those things to grow his kingdom from this place. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Heavenly Father, This is crazy. We can't do this stuff. Only you can do this by the power of your spirit. And we ask that you would come and that you would do that here. Oh, I see signs of it. We're not doing it perfectly. (laughs) But Lord, you're at work in this place. Please come. We just remind you of your ancient promise that, that when you begin a good work in us, that you will carry it on to completion of the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful even when we're not. And we pray that you would come, Jesus, by your spirit and that you would do what you said you would do, that you would build your church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Please come 
Build us up and use us for your glory and for the good of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.